Coming up today, how humans have broken a fundamental law of the ocean, and we look into the UK's plan to sequence the genomes of up to 200,000 babies. You're listening to The Wired UK Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Kalwala. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Grace Brown. This was the week when an international coalition of unions and equality and environmental groups organised strikes and protests against Amazon in more than 20 countries as the company cashed in on the Black Friday shopping bonanza. The group said that Black Friday epitomised our obsession with overconsumption and that it was destroying the planet. This was also the week when NASA launched the DART mission to test technology for tipping asteroids off course. The spacecraft will crash into an asteroid called Dimorphos to see how difficult it would be to stop a space rock from hitting the Earth. And finally, this was the week when scientists identified a concerning new coronavirus variant that seems to be spreading quite quickly across South Africa. It doesn't have an official name yet, but it seems likely that the World Health Organization will give it the name new, which signals that the variant could have a significant impact on how the coronavirus pandemic unfolds. It must be nearly Christmas because there's another variant on the way. Why has this variant got people so concerned then, Matt? So it has a lot of changes to the spike protein, which you'll probably know from following this over the last couple of years. That's how the SARS-CoV-2 virus recognises and targets host cells. And we've seen these changes before, similar changes in other variants like Delta, and they've been linked to heightened infectivity and some immune escape. And so there's kind of biological reasons for maybe being a bit worried. And also cases of this new variant seem to be sharply rising in parts of South Africa, uh, specifically the part where uh, Johannesburg is. And that could be a sign that it's outcompeting other variants. Extremely early days, but what do we need to find out next as the world scrambles to gather data on this? Yeah, I mean, it is really early days and there have been eight variants that have been given a name since Delta variant, which obviously became the most widespread across the world. And none of those caused huge, huge problems in the way that Delta did. So it's, it's definitely not a given that this is going to be the new Delta or whatever. But certainly things that scientists need to find out is they need to find out whether these mutations might help the virus evade the immune response. And if it does, what impact that might have on vaccine effectiveness. We also need to figure out whether the variant causes more severe disease, because obviously variants can affect how severe the disease is. And, and you know, that'll also make us uh, respond differently depending on how, you know, how worried we should be. So, Combining this with a sense of how quickly the variant is spreading will tell us how significant a risk it poses. But countries have moved quite quickly already, you know, kind of um, preempting any potential worries. So the UK has already moved to block travel from some Southern African countries. So it does look like countries are already taking this quite seriously. And we'll be taking it seriously too. I'm probably talking about it on the podcast next week when we know a whole lot more about it. All right, what else did we learn this week? Hopefully more cheerful things. Uh, Grace, I'll come to you first. So this week I learned that it would take a person typing 60 words per minute, eight hours a day, around 50 years to type the whole human genome. So 
50 years, mm-hmm. 60 words a minute, eight mm-hmm. hours a day. Yeah. I mean, no, no one would, would want to try this. I would imagine Just, not, but I mean, it would be their entire career. <laughs> we'll let the computers do it. Uh, Matt Reynolds, what did you learn so this week? I learned that the animal with the greatest difference between newborn weight and adult weight is the ocean sunfish. An adult sunfish can weigh over two tons, and that's 60 million times more than a freshly hatched sunfish. By way of comparison, a human adult only weighs 20 times more than a baby, which is kind of pathetic when you think about it. Pathetic. Pathetic. Yes. Uh, the ocean sunfish gives us something to aspire to. Uh, I like that you both brought on facts that are relevant to your stories because it makes uh, it makes it quite easy to segue into our first story, which is about big fish and little fish. Matt, tell us some more. Absolutely. So as I like to do, I'm going to take you on a little trip down memory lane all the way back to November the 19th, 1969, and a very specific part of the world, and that is Halifax Harbour in Nova Scotia, which is on the east coast of Canada. And we're going all the way back there to board a ship called CSS Hudson, which at the time was setting off on one of the last great uncharted oceanic voyages. And it was going to be the first ship to completely circumnavigate the Americas. So, you know, going down the bottom of Argentina and all the way back up through the north coast of Canada, you know, back to Halifax Harbour. Now, the CSS Hudson was a Canadian oceanic research research ship and it was bound for Rio de Janeiro and it'd pick up a whole bunch of scientists and then go through Cape Horn, which is that really kind of quite dangerous ocean passage uh, and the southernmost point in the Americas and then go back north through the Pacific and it'd traverse the northern passage as places usually completely blocked by ice so you need icebreakers to get through it and back to Halifax Harbour. So it's a, it's a proper old school uh, kind of globe-trotting voyage and something that hadn't been done before and in fact has never been done since the CSS Hudson made this trip but it wasn't actually about setting records of any of that or any of that stuff it it was really a research trip and one of these scientists on board was someone called Ray Sheldon and he was a marine ecologist at Canada's Bedford Institute of Ocean Oceanography and he was fascinated by really really tiny things by microscopic plankton that seemed to be absolutely everywhere in the ocean and he really had some quite basic questions from this trip he wanted to find out where these plankton were and you know how widely spread they were how evenly distributed through the ocean they were so what Sheldon and his colleagues did he had two colleagues on the trip every time the ship stopped they basically hauled buckets of seawater up and they took it to the laboratory and they used this plankton counting machine to total up the size and the number of creatures they found in every single sample and what they found was this simple mathematical rule, right? That the more of an ocean creature you have, the smaller they are. So let's make it simple. Think about whales, right? They're really big and there's not a lot of them in general terms. And then think about plankton. They're really small and there are tons of them. Exactly. And that intuitively makes sense, right? Big creatures, you get fewer of them. But what is interesting about this rule, which became known as the Sheldon spectrum, is that it's really, really mathematically precise. So if you take 
krill, for example, they're about a billion times smaller than tuna. And that means there are a billion times more of them in the ocean. So if you lump all these animals together by the biomass, no matter what size they are, they always seem to equal the same total biomass, which is it's kind of weird when you think about it. And I use this plankton example because this is how Sheldon you know, found it out initially. So what Sheldon and his colleagues did is they organised their plank- plankton samples by orders of magnitude. And so that's just timesing it by 10, right? So everything between 1 and 10, that's your first order of magnitude. And then everything between 10 and 99, that's your second order of magnitude and so on. So what they found is in this bucket of seawater, they'd look at all the mass of plankton that were between 1 and 10 micrometers. And they found that a whole third of that mass of plankton fell into that size bracket. And then they looked at that next order of magnitude, that next size bracket. So that's between 10 and 100 micrometers. And they found there's another third between that, um, you know, in that size bracket. So these two size brackets, um, they equaled exactly the same biomass. And you know what? They moved up another size group. So this is getting towards big plankton, so the kind of end of what they could measure. And it was exactly the same. There was another third of the mass that fell within that size bracket. And what Sheldon did was essentially extrapolate. So he was just looking at plankton, right? He was looking at really, really, really small things and then really, really small things. So he wasn't going up very far. But he basically said, I think this size rule governs life in the ocean all the way from bacteria and all the way up to whales. And you know what? It turned out to be true. So it became known as the Sheldon spectrum, and it's been seen in plankton, like Sheldon did, in fish, and in freshwater ecosystems too. And in fact, actually, Sheldon didn't know this, but three decades earlier, a Russian zoologist had noticed the same thing in soil, comparing soil bacteria and earthworms, and figured out that life on Earth, or life in the soil seem to follow this rule as well. So we've got this very strict mathematical rule that governs life in the oceans in particular. And we don't really know exactly why it is, but it seems to hold true. And I can see where you're going with this. We're not just telling a story about 1969 something's happened, right? We've messed it all up. Yeah, exactly. And the reason why I'm talking about it now is because there's this new uh, research from McGill University in in Canada that basically says, oh, this rule that seemed to hold true and was has been true for as long as we can really you know, figure out, or humans seem to have messed it up. So I'll, I'll explain to you what's kind of going on, but there are kind of two caveats I, I need to say here. It's that Sheldon's size spectrum broadly holds true but if you go really really small and if you're talking about bacteria there's actually a lot more bacteria uh, in terms of biomass than you would expect so there's a you know it's slightly weighted towards bacteria and then the really really large end of the scale like really big big whales there's a little bit less whale, whale biomass than you would expect but in the middle of that spectrum you get this flat line when you lump all of these creatures together uh, by their size you get these even chunks of biomass. And what these McGill researchers did is they they basically estimated what the oceans were like before 1850, which they took as this rough, um, you know, pristine ocean scenario, right, before industrialised fishing. Although there was some significant whaling back then, so it's not like exactly pristine. But, um, you know, they're saying, well, what happened before we started fishing the oceans at a huge scale? And what they found is that this spectrum, this Sheldon spectrum, was, you know, really, really accurate. So they added up all the organisms between one and 10 grams, and it came to a billion metric tons. It's a gigaton. The same was true for all the organisms weighing between 10 and 100 grams, and then between 100 grams and one kilogram, and so on. And also, you know, down if you're talking about between 
uh, you know, much smaller measurements as well. So they realised that no matter what, uh, you know, size bucket you looked at, we were getting a billion metric tonnes of animals in each of those brackets. Now, what they did is they compared that with these modern day estimates and they said, okay, well, if we bucket them all up again, what do we get now? And what they found is that the biomass of fish larger than 10 grams and also all marine mammals. So marine mammals are like, you know, dolphins and and whales and uh, seals and and things like that. So they're quite large, they're much larger than most fish. They found that the the size of all of those animals, they'd lost about 2 billion metric tonnes of biomass since 1800. So there's all of these fish, all of these very large fish, or, you know, fish bigger than 10 grams, so not really that large, that just are no longer there anymore. Just 2 million metric tonnes of biomass just vanished from the ocean. And in fact, the very largest size classes seem to have experienced a reduction in biomass of nearly 90% since 1800s. So if before I said that when you organise by these size buckets, you've got this kind of flat line, really, you've got a billion tonnes in each bucket, what you now have is a line that tilts downwards. The bigger we get, the, the, the less biomass you get in each group. It's quite a complicated thing to work out, I'd imagine. Like You've got very big oceans, very small creatures, very spread out. How do you go about proving something like this? You've got the hypothesis. How do you take it from that to fact? Yeah, so what they did is they went in the ocean and they looked at a fish and they said, they had a little tally and they said, okay, one. And they said, now you just stay there and I'm going to count all the other fish. (laughs) Um, No, no, so you're right. In essence, it's really, really difficult to do these kind of projections. And there are quite wide error margins on this. But luckily, there are lots of data sources that we have. So for instance, this group um, from McGill, it, it did quite interesting things. So they they um, used estimates from satellite images to estimate um, plankton uh, plankton coverage. So basically, you can use the ocean temperature and, and the kind of colour and reflecti- reflectivity of the water to try and estimate how much plankton there are in a certain area. So they used things like satellite imagery, and then they used um, models from fisheries that can predict the abundance of fish to say, okay, we've got this many uh, fish in each of these size groups. And then they used marine mammal population estimates, uh, estimates which are, are quite commonly taken because you know, for a lot of people, they're the most important animals in the ocean. So we know quite a lot about how many mammals there are. And what they did is they took all these estimates and used that to you know, basically make guesses about the abundance of these 12 major groups of marine organisms, all the way from bacteria to mammals. And they did that and they said, okay, well, this is probably, you know, what we have in the ocean today. And they they basically then took what we knew about how fisheries had taken fish out of the water over the last 150 years and said, right, if we you know, cycle back, like almost like turning back the timeline all the way to 1850, this is what you would expect there to be for these kind of bigger fish populations back in 1850. So it was quite, to be honest, it's quite rough, right? It's really difficult to get a picture of the oceans now, let alone the oceans in 1850. But they said, okay, well, if we project back then, this is likely what it was. And we have have a reasonably good sense about what these fish populations are like now, because a lot of people are very interested in these fish populations. And they just brought together a whole bunch of data, you know, hundreds of thousands of data points to make this comparison between 1850 or pre-1850 and the modern day. And I guess there's another way that they know something is going on, and that's the why. Like, why has this 
happened and we can see the damage that we've done to the ocean so it's not surprising that it's having this kind of impact right so the 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 answer here is why has it happened it's overfishing right yeah exactly and in a way you know this big finding from the paper which is essentially this size spectrum is is kind of broken it's really interesting and that's quite novel but it's just another way of looking at what we already know you know as you said so if you take these, you know, just looking at whale species, uh, for instance, so between 1890 and 2001, the population of all whale species declined from more than 2.5 million to under 880,000. So I mean, there's been a huge, huge dent in this, you know, the very, very large end of the biomass. And while the majority of fish stocks are now fished in a way that allows them to maintain or grow their population. Around 34% of fish stocks are overexploited, which means that those populations you know, aren't recovering and they're going down. I'm sure you've seen these headlines about, you know, tuna populations, you know, at certain decades reach their lowest um, spawning levels and other, um, you know, fish stocks being exploited, you know, Japanese anchovy, Alaska pollock, South American pilchard. So lots of these quite large, important fish that we know their populations are declining. And this spectrum, this size spectrum, is just another way of looking at this pattern that we know is happening at certain points in the ocean. And this size spectrum also gives us a way to to get out of this problem, potentially, right? We We know we're fishing too much anyway but the size spectrum might help us to understand how we might change the way we fish to allow the natural order to recover yeah exactly because the fact that this size spectrum order exists kind of suggests that there's this equilibrium that nature finds if you leave it alone and so that leads us to say well maybe if we want to get healthy oceans we should be looking at ways to try and keep this size spectrum and in fact we know this because if you look at the size spectrum in particular areas like coral reefs you know the ones that have a more um, flat sheldon spectrum they're healthier than ones that have a much more uh, you know narrow line so we can use this as a way to estimate marine health and actually this is super important because obviously if we're thinking about atlantic cod well we can measure the level of cod that we're getting out of the sea but all that tells us is this one species that we happen to be really interested in because we happen to eat a whole bunch of it it tells us how well that one species is doing but that doesn't tell us a whole bunch about the health of the ocean right it doesn't tell us about the species that those cod eat or the species that eat the cod or how they all interrelate so one thing that comes out of this study is maybe we should be looking at ways that better maintain this size spectrum rather than really fixating on well how many tuna are we taking out of the ocean how many cod are we taking out of the ocean because that's a very resource and food focused way of thinking about it and one place that this leads you is to say okay well which fish from which species should we be taking out of the ocean And this kind of centres on something that scientists called BOFs, which is B-O and then four Fs, which means big, old, fat, fecund, female fish, which is, it sounds like a bit inciting, but it basically means these are the fertile fish that are repopulating a certain species. And it turns out that fisher people really like BOFs because they're fat, because they can sell them for quite high prices. But at the same time, they're a really vital source of new baby fish. So one way to you know, manage the size spectrum and to keep it even would be to say, you know what, you're not, you're not allowed to fish out the biggest fish. You need to put those back in the ocean because those are the ones that are going to 
you know, replenish this population or replenish this ecosystem. And maybe you should be steering towards targeting medium sized fish. And this would allow these mature fish to kind of replenish this population. So by maintaining that size spectrum, it might lead you to different ways of targeting your fishing. And this is something we're already doing. And what you're talking about here with the size spectrum is giving us that extra information to inform. But outside of that, for several decades now, right, there have been pretty good efforts in certain areas to target this problem and to reverse the damage. Yeah, and we've we've definitely seen this. I think that's the really positive um, story from the ocean. I think like, you know, you know, if you've been following any climate stories or any biodiversity stories, it's quite easy to think about, you know, doom and gloom. And like, there are lots of things that are really bad. But also, we know that if you leave marine populations alone, or if you manage them responsibly, they are pretty resilient, you know, if you give them this breathing space. And we know that because the population of a whole bunch of whale species has rebounded massively since the global whaling moratorium in 1986. And although there is still some whaling and also some species are still endangered you know we've had a really big uh, rebound in these whale populations and we've seen that in other species um so for instance this year the iucn which is you know creates that red list that tells us which species are threatened and which species are of, of less concern they move four tuna species further down its list of threatened species so like the right way not the wrong way because these started to recover because of stricter fishing quotas and crackdowns on illegal fishing. And also there's a lot of movement at the moment to turn more of the ocean into these marine protected areas, which have very strict fishing limits or in certain circumstances have you know no ocean extraction at all. So there's this movement that's kind of called 30 by 30, which is talking about can we make 30% of the oceans these marine protected areas by 2030? And if we leave these areas alone, there's a lot of reason to think that they can recover. It's a bit of a mistake to talk about these huge, huge issues on an individual level. But people who are listening to this may be thinking about what they should have for dinner. Is there something that people can do if they want to make a difference? Say, eat a specific kind of fish or just stop eating fish altogether? Yeah, I mean, there definitely are things we can do. I mean, first up, eating, not eating fish is better than eating fish, you know. At the end of the day, you're going to have to extract fish from the ocean if you want to eat fish. And that comes with lots of problems in terms of bycatch because lots of non-target fish basically get caught up in these nets. And that's what ends up killing a lot of these marine mammals and these bigger fish. So you can always switch some of your fish for, you know, a kind of plant-based protein or something like that. But also there is lots of reasons to think that there are certain fish populations that maybe it's better to eat than other fish populations. So I mentioned that 35, actually 34% of fish stocks are overfished. But actually that means that the majority of fish stocks out there, they're they're fished in a maximally sustainable way, which basically means we're taking out the the max limit of fish, but enough that it doesn't mean the populations are declining. So um, species that kind of fall into that bracket, for example, might be Atlantic and Pacific tuna. They're fish close to their sustainable limits, so they're possibly good choices. Not the case in the Indian Ocean, where they are fished over their sustainable limits. So you need to be quite specific because it doesn't actually, it's not just about the species of fish, it's about the stock in a particular area. So you might want to say, well, these Alaskan pollock versus, you know, pollock elsewhere in the world, you might want to think about exactly where those fish 
are coming from. That's the same with perch and some rockfish. Those populations are also doing well, so it might be better to eat those. It's not true of sharks and rays, which are really, really badly overfished and some of the most uh, vulnerable fish. And also their species are vulnerable to these side effects from other types of fishing. So it, it really is complicated because it's hard to know the knock-on effects that, um, you know, ocean dredging and things like that have. But you might want to start by looking at, well, okay, which stocks are more sustainably fished and, you know, heading towards there. And there's lots of resources out there to kind of help make these decisions. But basically, eat less fish, try and, you know, source your fish more sustainably. When we talked about um, the impact of maybe switching from beef to chickens and how many more chickens we'd have to kill and maybe the the unexpected or unthought of damage that that might bring about we got an awful lot of emails from people who were asking these kinds of questions about their own diet and the way that they think about its impact in the environment so i guess this is another example of where being more aware of this data and these trends can help people make better informed decisions so podcast at wired .co.uk. I'm going to formally open the Matt Reynolds What Should I Eat and How surgery. If you've got any questions for Matt or you just want to share how you've changed your diet in response to a greater awareness of the environment, let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Our second story this week is about genome sequencing and a controversial new UK scheme that wants to roll it out for hundreds of thousands of babies. Grace, what's happening? So Genomics England, which is a government-owned company, uh, they recently received funding to run a research project in the UK that will sequence the genomes of between 100,000 and 200,000 babies. The scheme, which they're calling the Newborn Genomes Programme, it will be run as part of the NHS, so embedded within the NHS, and will specifically look to find what are called actionable genetic conditions. Um, these are inheritable diseases that already have existing treatments or interventions, and they're only going to look for conditions that manifest in early life as opposed to in adulthood. So this is all part of something of a revolution in what they call predictive medicine. There's loads of funding going into trying to predict diseases before they manifest and hopefully save the health system money. And in 2019, Matt Hancock promised that the government would usher in a genomic revolution with the future of medicine being predictive, preventative and personalised. But this is different from the, you know, the 23andMe kits that people might have taken at home, that listeners might have tried themselves. What do we mean when we talk about whole genome sequencing exactly? So... Basically, your genome is made up of about 3 billion base pairs and whole genome sequencing basically maps them all out, meaning that scientists can look, take your genome, analyze it, compare it to this kind of reference database that they have and look for specific genetic variations that might be associated with certain diseases such as cancer. So what are the benefits, you know, what kind of diseases might we be able to spot with this and What's happening? Why is this happening now? I remember 10 or 20 years ago, there was this whole thing around the first time we sequenced the human genome, but is it getting cheaper? And is that why this is kind of coming to market right now? Um, so the whole idea behind this is that by increasing the number of conditions that newborns are screened for at the beginning of their life, um, it could have like massive repercussions for their health later on. We already screen newborns for certain diseases of birth using what's known as the heel prick test, where doctors take just a tiny amount of blood from a newly born infant. And then they test that blood to detect whether the baby has one of nine rare but very serious health conditions, such as cystic fibrosis or sickle cell anemia. Um, the UK is actually kind of an outlier in that we only test 
for nine. The US tests for between 30 and 50. Um, but the UK tends to be a little bit more conservative when it comes to this kind of testing. Um, but basically, Genomics England is making the case that we should be using whole genome sequencing to detect way more conditions than just nine. They're saying that maybe they could expand the test into the hundreds uh, of conditions. Um, and obviously, that means that if we're able to detect potentially hundreds of conditions for a newborn, that means early diagnosis, and then that means early treatment, which means that a child will likely have way better health outcomes and a quality of life later down the line. Um, it could also help potentially shorten what doctors call the diagnostic odyssey, um, which is when, when children have these very rare diseases, which we don't know a lot about, um, these the, their parents are forced to basically just go from clinic to clinic and their very sick child has to get test after test and sometimes they just like never get an answer and that's where whole genome sequencing could come in um so like you said you know we did it for the first time in the early 2000s uh it took a very long time many years and a lot of money it cost about 2.7 billion dollars in total for the human, human genome project and in the past decade or so, it's gotten a lot cheaper. It can be as cheap as $200 sometimes. And we're also able to do it much quicker than the many years it took. We can get results now within about a day. Um, so Genomics England are making the argument that it's maybe the right time to bring in this technology and kind of mesh it with newborn screening to you know, tackle this diagnostic odyssey and maybe even come up with better treatments for these rare diseases. So on the face of it, this all seems broadly pretty positive, right? You know, detecting diseases early can help prevent a lot of harm and, you know, provide treatments much, much earlier on and hopefully lead to these children having much healthier lives. But I think as with the um, Alzheimer's story that I talked about, the Alzheimer's screening test a few weeks ago, the dementia screening test, there is a problem in that screening for something doesn't necessarily mean being able to treat it, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, So... One of the biggest concerns is that the technology is not going to benefit everyone equally. Um, we uh, we know a ton about genetics, but there's still a lot that we don't know. Um, and, for, and it can really create problems when we're applying it in real life situations like this one. Um, for example, you can detect genetic variations that are associated with a certain disease, but the individual in question might be carrying a variant that actually never, um, might be carrying the variant, but they actually end up never getting sick. Um, because they're carrying another undetected gene that is compensating for it. And that means that it could generate just a ton of unwarranted anxiety for families. Um, Others worry it may disrupt the process of parent-child bonding in early life, those really, really important formative weeks and months after birth. And one, one other massive concern is that, you know, we do say we do expand this list. A lot of these rare diseases don't even have a treatment yet. And if they do, they are extremely expensive. They can cost in the millions. And so, you know, if you're telling your par- telling these parents that their child has this rare condition, you want to be really, really sure that what you're telling them is true. Yeah, and I guess the financial issue is another aspect as well, as with the Alzheimer's and dementia story that, you know, you had these, in that story, there was like, concerns that you'd have all these people with dementia or who've been been told that they might get dementia overwhelming the health system and I guess here it might be similar where if you're screening hundreds of thousands of children for genetic conditions and telling parents that they're at risk of a certain thing but then you don't have the money to actually treat it or provide a treatment what's that going to do to the health system which has already been hit really hard by the pandemic yeah exactly and 
one of the other biggest concerns is that these reference databases that I mentioned earlier, um, they're not exactly spread very equally. Um, and so in that case, people are worried that this technology and the scheme may not benefit everyone equally and may actually exacerbate existing inequalities. Um, so the reference databases are largely made up of um, data from people of European ancestry um, and certain ethnic groups are really, really underrepresented in them. Um, and so there's concerns that certain populations, particularly such as black or Hispanic groups, um, this technology is just not going to work for them and may actually create more problems than it's worth. For example, um, in these populations, whole genome sequencing is more likely to detect what's called a variant of unknown significance. Um, these are gene variants that scientists think might be associated with a disease or a disorder, but they don't yet have enough evidence to be sure. And so that means that these populations may end up burdened by the anxiety of an inconclusive result where, you know, like a white peer might be afforded a definitive result. But then, on the other hand, the only way to improve or rectify this inequality is to improve the reference databases and recruit more diverse people. So it's kind of a catch-22 situation. Yeah, and whenever you're talking about databases and collecting uh, biological data, there's always a certain um, sector of people that are quite worried about this. And you spoke to some bioethicists who've got philosophical concerns as well, right? As well as just the sort of financial and other concerns that we've mentioned. Yeah, so bioethicists have been thinking about this idea for a long time, basically ever since we were able to do whole genome sequencing. Um, you know, there's data, there's papers dating back to 2012, long before we this could ever even have been put into place. Um, one of the biggest concerns is that this kind of screening could potentially take away something that's called a child's right to an open future, which basically means um, that children are born with this innate right not to know about their genomic makeup, that the knowledge might just be a burden that the be better off without. Um, and research research has even shown that many people, in the, as, as, as they become adults and they may potentially be at risk for adult onset conditions such as Huntington's disease or breast cancer, they actually often decide not to get tested for them when they have the choice. And so some of these bioethicists are arguing, shouldn't newborns be afforded the same kind of autonomy? I, I guess that's that's an interesting point, but it's sort of undermined by the fact that we test, do the heel prick test, right? It doesn't seem like there's a fundamental difference between testing for those nine rare diseases. If we're going to do that, then why shouldn't we test for the other, you know, hundreds or thousands of diseases that, that might be revealed by a whole genome sequencing test? And the bioethicists are maybe at odds with this kind of general public on this, according to research, right? Yeah, so Genomics England are very keen on getting the public's input into this scheme. And so they held this kind of public dialogue where they consulted with about 130 members of the British public just to get their thoughts on if we're, such a scheme were to be put into place. And surprisingly, their response was actually pretty positive. People said they would support such a scheme, but on the condition that certain safeguards were put in place, such as screening only for conditions that affect newborns early in life as opposed to later in life and for conditions that already have existing treatments. Um, and Genomics England is very um, aware of all the ethical concerns that come along with such a scheme. And they are not, it's nowhere near uh, ready to being rolled out. Uh, it probably won't start for another 18 months or so, at least they've said. We've touched on this a little bit already, but the data is another big concern, right, in the context of fears about the NHS being, you know, privatised and fears about big organisations and their management of data. 
and the fact that you know once your you know your DNA is not like your password, right? Once your whole genome is out there, it's out there and available for whoever wants to do something to it to do something with it. You know whether that's an insurance company assessing it and, and giving you a higher premium, or you know a biohacker using it to do something that that might cause you harm. What's going to happen to this data once it's been collected? So it's kind of the second. Um, potentially more important part of Genomics England plan is to, you know, really make use of this data. And obviously it's a ton of data. It's a mountain of data. Like I said, it's 3 billion base pairs. Um, And you're going to be doing this for up to 200,000 babies. It's just going to be an enormous pile of data. And what they're doing is that they're going to de-identify the data and put it into a kind of research library, which will then be open to using by researchers and also commercial um, testing companies um, with the hope of maybe, you know, coming up with new treatments or diagnostics, etc. Um, and they're also exploring the potential of having a person's genome be part of their actual medical record that can be used at later stages of your life. Um, so, you know, like maybe you go to the doctor's office when you're 30 and the doctor can uh, look through your file and pull out your genome. Um, but then in turn, this obviously opens up a ton of ethical questions, like you mentioned, you know, like, will it be able to affect your ability to get life insurance? You know, could a potential employer also pull up your genome and say, I'm not going to hire you because you have this genetic variant? Um, and then also there's concerns about data breaches, you know, what if this data were to fall into the wrong hands? And Genomics England has said, like I said, the, d- the data will be de-identified, uh, which means that the identity linked to each data point will be scrubbed. But from the speaking to the experts, they've said that de-identification is basically a misnomer because you can easily re-identify a data point with just a teeny tiny amount of information. So, you know, it, may, it, does, it isn't as reassuring as it might sound. Yeah, particularly when you're talking about something that is unique to an individual, right? If if you're one of only a handful of people that have got rare, rare disease, then that being in the database, you know, the fact that it's de-identified might not be that reassuring to you. I think this story raises really interesting questions about the future of medicine and what this kind of tension between hyper-personalised medicine and privacy and, and, and this kind of strange battle that we're going to have to fight and we're going to have to pick a path through it. I'm interested in what everyone else thinks. James, in particular, you mentioned some of this kind of genetic research in your book and some of the benefits of whole genome sequencing. Yeah, I think something else that's worth pointing out here is the the potential power of an organisation like the NHS. And we've seen for many years um, how interested private companies are in working with the NHS because it it has so many patients there's so much scale and so much potential. Um, you know, there's the potential negative there, but there's also a, a potential positive in the scale at which you can roll this sort of thing out and make it available to everybody in the population, technically with no discrimination, even if the system does discriminate. Um, and the need is acute, right? There are many, many, many children born every year with diseases that if we were able to detect them, we might be able to do something about it. And the point that you both raise about cost um, is a really important one. You know, just just because we can doesn't mean we can afford to. Um, so, Amit, you, you mentioned this this book that I work on um, worked on um, a couple of years ago. So one of the um, case studies in that is um, a young girl called um, Mia Makovich, um, who's since passed away. Um, she was just three or four years old. But the disease that she had, Batten's disease, which is a, a very, very rare, very severe genetic disease, um, 
they were able to detect it because of whole genome sequencing, but they were only able to do that because if I think you use the, the phrase um, sort of a healthcare odyssey where you go around and try and find someone to confirm the suspicions that you have that your child is quite seriously ill. Their diagnosis came too late, but if they had have made that diagnosis earlier, a treatment might have been made available. And in fact, eventually a drug was developed. It was the first um, gene therapy developed for just one patient, just for this little girl's specific genetic mutation. So the point that everybody I spoke to around this made was that the science is ready. The technology is there to do this, just necessarily the, the system and the economics aren't there to do it. And I think alongside that, what you lay out is there's this whole can of worms in terms of ethics, like how as a society do we approach having all this data and if we can act on it, can we afford to act on it? And I think that's a that's a really difficult point to address. You know, telling someone that they've got a condition, fine. Can you afford to treat it? Yeah, and I think in the context of a public health system, that's that's even more important, right? Because presumably if this pilot is successful, it's going to get rolled out to the point where I'm sure Genomics England would like every single baby born in the UK to be to be screened in this way. Um, which would help, yeah, as you say, identify potentially rare diseases. But then, you know, the the, the treatment for Batten's disease costs, what, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars? Is the health situation going to be in, in a situation where they have to tell parents who wouldn't necessarily have wanted the test to be done that, you know, we have identified that your child has this problem, but we're not going to treat it? And, and I can see that being a really, really difficult conversation that they're going to have to have a lot if this test becomes commonplace. Yeah, absolutely. The The economics of it might be ultimately the thing that doesn't work. We're able to gather the data, we're able to develop the treatments. It's just we can't do it in a way that's affordable to everyone. And it's an interesting moment in the future of healthcare, if you like. Uh, we sort of sit at this this moment where things are going to start changing quite rapidly. And Grace's story really, really powerfully outlines work that's already underway that's kind of giving us a glimpse of this future we'll include a link to the full story in the show notes and if you've got thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week it's podcast at wired.co.uk um time for one email before we wrap up the show this week wrap up yep yeah that was uh, an intentionally bad pun uh, mike emails in with an update on burgers wrapped in foil um which was um i would say a mystery i, I, th- I think it's probably too mundane to be a mystery but we'll, we'll go with mystery uh so mike uh said that he used to eat burgers wrapped in foil this caused a bit of confusion uh he now confirms that um the burgers that his mother made him when he was a child were wrapped in foil so he could eat them for his lunch he would unwrap them before eating them um i think that helps to clear up all the confusion um the burgers were not cooked in foil he did not eat the foil all of all of this now seems fine. The mystery is over, and so is the podcast for this week. Podcast at wired.co.uk. If you want to email in about pretty much anything, it seems, um, we'll bring it onto the show. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening, as always. We'll be back again same time next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.